Well, it is just always wonderful to be with you as a church, so it's good to be here. I'm, I'm just delighted to see all the little kids running around here and that you're doing something about it. I thought Dustin's introduction to the class was, it, I, I think it happens to every parent, you know, you you have these children and one day it dawned on you, you have to parent them. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I had someone come to interview me one time, uh, wanted to know the greatest leadership challenge I'd ever had in ministry. And I looked at him and I said, I have three teenagers, nothing surpasses the challenge <laughs> of parenting them. So I'm, I'm glad you all take this seriously. And I am glad that this church has young people who <laughs> want to get married and have children. Uh, that is not the be-all and end-all of life. Uh, walking with Jesus and following the path he set before us, that's what our life is about. But as you'll see today in this passage, we do need to think about other generations. And we do need to think about the life we leave behind. So you're open to Proverbs 16 already. I'm not going to read just yet. Uh, I want to set up the reading by mentioning, <coughs> this will be meaningful to a few of you, uh, in a few weeks, that ultimate spectacle of sports, the Super Bowl will crown the top team in the National Football League. Now, I mentioned that I stopped watching NFL football a long time ago, but at the end of every season, I am drawn to the commentary of why the poor teams did poorly and why the good teams succeeded and won. And of course, every year I read what is usually referenced as an autopsy of my own home team, the Washington Commanders, also known as the Washington Redskins, usually with the word hapless put before the name of the team. Um, and I'm just interested in different people and their evaluation of why did it end up this way? After a team wins the Super Bowl, the coaches and players and journalists will explain how the team reached the ultimate prize in football. And often they'll talk of the character of the team. They didn't give up even through a losing streak. They encouraged the teammates who struggled. They defended each other in the media. When they failed, they didn't blame other people but took personal responsibility. They didn't listen to what people said about them in news or social media. But day to day, they stuck to doing what needed to be done to win games. And as the story goes, it was the day-to-day -day habits that paved the path to the Super Bowl. And that's the point of today's passage we need to consider. It's how you end that matters. And how you live day-to-day -day is what gets you there. It's how you end. How you end that matters. And how you get there day-to-day 
is what gets you to that end. <coughs> this is why the writer of Ecclesiastes says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. At funeral, you see a life in its totality. At a wedding, it's all promise and future hope. And while I find weddings to be wonderful, funerals are instructive because it's how you end that matters. So let's read. We're going to begin uh, in chapter 16, verse 31, and you probably going to wonder, why does he start there? It's only three verses to the end. I'll explain that in a minute. But I think you're going to see that the first and last verse give us an idea of what this passage is about. So please read with me Proverbs 16, verse 31. These are God's words. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. A crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Let's pray. We're not used to this portion of your word, Lord, this book of Proverbs, and so we need you to teach us not only what's there, but how to read it and understand it. And so we pray that you would give us understanding today, and that as you open our eyes to the passage, you would open our eyes to our life. For every verse speaks to the practicalities of our lives day to day. So, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, I know I have, I have water, three bottles of water, and eight cough drops in my pocket. So I'm well prepared. You'll notice right away when you look at this passage that the first verse and the last are very similar. We have gray hair and grandchildren, which would speak to living to old age. Each verse uses the metaphor of a crown, and each verse refers to glory 
or we could translate that word splendor, the splendor that comes at the end of righteous life. Now, you may not be aware of it. It depends on how long you've been looking into the Bible, but the chapters and verses in your Bible are not original. They were added around beginning around 800 years ago to help readers find their way to sections and verses. So the chapter break from chapter 16 to 17 is not from the person or persons who developed the, and put together the book of Proverbs. The ancient writers used other cues to chapters and sections of a book. Uh, one of them, I'll give you the technical word, some of you will find this interesting, it's called an inclusio, and what it refers to is you'll have a verse that starts a topic and a verse that concludes a topic, and everything in between is supposed to relate to the topic of first and last verse. So it seems that the compiler of these verses intended for us to interpret what comes in between in the context of two verses on old people at the beginning and the end. So that's how we're going to interpret this passage today. How does the wisdom of the middle verses contribute to gaining a crown of glory in old age? So we're going to go now through it verse by verse. Please keep your Bibles open so you can look at the text. More important, you see the text than anything I say. Chapter 16, verse 31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Now, <clears throat> if you read the first half of this verse alone, you'll think what it means is if you live long enough, so your hair grows gray, you should get credit and a crown for it. But when you read it, <laughs> some of us are hanging on to that. Um, but when you read the second half, you see that the crown that gets placed on a gray head is accumulated, the accumulated slender of a righteous life. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version here. I think it misses something in translation because the second half of the verse uses a key word in Proverbs. The second half says, literally, it is gained in the way of a righteous life. As you read through Proverbs, you come to see that our lives are a journey. We are on a way, on a road, with its many twists and turns, with weather making it hard or easy to travel. How we act on our way as we travel the road determines the kind of person that we become. So, in verse 31, a life that walks in the way of righteousness will end with the person who walked that way being recognized as beautiful and honorable. The crown only goes to the old person who has walked in the way of righteousness. I can tell you from plenty of experience that there are plenty of old fools in the Bible and in this life. So just living long doesn't mean much. There's no crown for an old fool. Now, I just created a theological problem, if you haven't noticed yet. 
If you know your New Testament and you know New Testament theology, you may think that this means that God counts us as righteous because of our works. And so we need to see that the Bible uses the word righteous in two very different but very connected ways. So I need to explain that before we go further. <clears throat> the first way the Bible uses the word righteous is referring to the gift of righteousness. When we come to faith, we realize that God has made us righteous in his sight by forgiving our sins through the death of his son. And so we're then really righteous before God because we are in Jesus Christ. And so you have this status and this identity. You are utterly transformed because you're joined to Jesus. And so when God the Father looks at us, he sees his Son, and so he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so if you are a believer in Jesus today, you are righteous in God's sight. And you need to remember that because you can slip into thinking that you become righteous through what you do. No, you become righteous by being joined to Jesus. But in that state of gifted righteousness, something wonderful happens. We begin to act like God's Son. Because we are righteous, we act righteous. And that is the stuff of a righteous life. The world, all our old habits, and the devil contest our growth in righteousness, so we still sin. But when we sin, we get back up and we try again. <coughs> Excuse me. Ah, perfect. So the gift of righteousness produces a righteous character of which comes righteous deeds. When these deeds accumulate over a lifetime, the people around that person see him as glorious. His deeds reflect a character that shines out all who know him. Okay, that's how it works. But it begins with the gift of righteousness and then acting out of that gift. So let's see how this plays out <laughs> in the next seven verses. What kind of life results in gray hair becoming a splendid crown? Now this is not comprehensive, but the writer of Proverbs wants you to see that there are certain qualities of your life in the intervening verses between chapter 16, 31 and chapter seven, uh, 17, verse 6 in between that would point to what a righteous life looks like. So look at 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. It takes more than power, or I should say it takes more power to rule over your own inner life than it does to direct the power of an army against a city. Have you ever thought of that? Controlling your own heart takes more power than commanding a mighty army. Someone provokes you to anger. They insult you. They break promise. They slander you. 
your immediate impulse is to react with harsh, angry words, even violence. If you are righteous, in pursuit of a righteous life, you restrain your impulses. Anger may be appropriate, but how you vent or keep from venting your anger will make a huge difference. So the uh, scholar, New Test uh, Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, who's taught me much about this book, would say, the foundation of his righteousness is his ability to rule his unruly spirit when provoked. Verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. <coughs> Building on verse 32, just because you can rule your inner reaction to things doesn't mean you're in control of events. Your trust must be in God's sovereignty. So this is not giving us advice to cast lots. You know, just get out the... You know, husband, wife, can't make a decision, don't know what's the right thing to do, let's just roll the dice and see what chance says. No. The idea behind this verse is to make vivid the often seemingly random events of life. We're to do the right thing, guided by the Word, guided by the Spirit, guided by prayer, and when it seems like we've done everything we know to do, and we've done it as righteously as we are able, still things may not turn out the way we want. A righteous person trusts that God will work His good ways even through the random events of life. And then we come to chapter 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Here you have a choice. You can pursue wealth and pleasure at the expense of relationship. Welcome to Southern California. Or you can deny yourself money and pleasure and sit down over a meal of dry toast with those you love and who love you. The righteous person puts relationship ahead of gaining wealth and spending it on his pleasure. When you place money and fun over building right relationships, you get conflict in the relationships you do have. So in a righteous life, you put relationships ahead of the pursuit of wealth and pleasure. Verse 2, a servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully. He will share the, inher uh, he will share the inheritance of one of the brothers. Here we have a wise servant and a shameful son. In the ancient world, <coughs> they did have business corporations. Every business was a family business. The family business was intended to be handed down from father to sons. The family business employed servants who helped in the business, but who only received their wages. They would not become owners. But what you have is a servant who works like he is an owner. And you have a son who extracts his wealth from the business but puts nothing back into it. A son who is lazy, who presumes that one day he'll inherit his share 
no matter what he does today. A wise father will show discretion in how he leaves his property to others. <coughs> He'll reward those who have sacrificed to enhance the family's property. And he'll withhold property from someone he knows will only continue to squander it. And so after the father dies, his servant ends up in management over a lazy son. Verse 3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord knows our inner condition better than any other person. He knows you better than you know yourself. And with that knowledge, he introduces tests in our life that test our hearts in a way that is comparable to how silver and gold refine. Now, most of us do not have experience with this. You may not be aware that when drawn out of the earth, silver and gold are rarely pure. They are usually embedded in other minerals. And so the miner, the miner must heat them in a container called a crucible until they become super hot liquid. And when he does this, the other elements, which are lighter than the precious metal, float to the top. And then he skims off what's called the dross, and when he removes the heat, the metal hardens into pure silver or gold. A righteous person allows the Lord to purify him in the heat of difficulty. Sometimes we get this idea that if you live a life a righteous life, you'll never have any difficulties. I would argue that the opposite is true. <laughs> so the righteous person sees that the financial setback, the bad news from the doctor, the lost job, the damaged reputation, that difficult child, the constant disagreements with his wife, all of these are under the control of his God. And all are intended to make his inner life, his character, pure and precious. Let that give you hope when life is hard. Okay, God's got me in furnace. It's his furnace, his crucible. I don't look what he's scraping off, but apparently it's got to go. And one day you realize, I'm a different person. And I would not have become different were it not for that difficulty. Verse 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar, <coughs> a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Listening to a lie is the moral equivalent of speaking the lie. Listening is more than having something come to your attention, it means to hear it and agree with it. Or if you know it's false, you know that, and you know that it has evil intent, you, and you are able to talk back to the liar, you resist both the falsehood and the evil person spreading it. Of course, this is impossible to do with the news media. 
<laughs> and unlikely with so-called social media, which I call antisocial media. But that's another topic. Listen to Derek Kidner on this verse. Evil words die without a welcome, and the welcome gives us away. So when you hear a lie, you know it's not true. When you hear someone gossiping about another person to tear down their reputation, you resist in any way you can. You don't let it find a welcome place in your heart. The way of righteousness is the way of rejecting evil speech when it comes to your attention. And then verse 5, <coughs> whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Of course, the poor are often defenseless before men and women who hold power. But the one who created that poor person not only sees the mistreatment, but God takes it personally. The poor are mocked and rejected for their shabbier out-of-date dress, their unkempt falling-down house, their poor health, poor diet, their lack of social refinement, they don't even know which fork to use for the salad, their lack of education, lack of friends, lack of defenders. The righteous person sees their plight and seeks to alleviate it. He does not look down and mock or sneer as if his wealth is the result of his righteousness. He agrees with his maker that there is a wrong to be righted here, and so he shows compassion, and he does it, does something about it. And that leads us to the conclusion of the passage. Verse 6. <coughs> Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their fathers. Now, this is not saying, not simply saying that if your children produce children, you will be seen as just a wonderful person. Making babies comes naturally to the human race. The test comes in seeking to form these young humans into faithful adults. You have these kids and you realize, I have to parent them. In the context of this passage, grandchildren who walk in the righteousness of their father and grandfather become an amplification of the righteous way of life the old person has walked in. And if you look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, this would include not just fathers, but mothers and grandmothers as well. When... I told you, I, I, I would say the greatest leadership challenge in, challenges in my life and the things that required more wisdom than anything else that I've done in life came the raising of our four children. When they were growing, Nancy and I would often remind each other that the reward for our efforts would not be in how well they behaved, on that day, how many awards they won at school or on the athletic field. The reward would be if, as adults, they walked in the ways of righteousness and wisdom and 
pass that on to their children. That's the direction verse 6 takes us. And the second half of verse 6 shows us that it works both ways. A grandchild walks in the way of righteousness becomes a splendid crown for his grandparents. The same can be said for a wise father. His children bask in the beauty of his and their mother's righteous life. So it's a beautiful thing to see righteousness passed down from one generation to the, the next. And so we end where we began. A righteous way of life will end in admiration that becomes a crown to the gray head who walked in wisdom throughout his life. And his influence will not only be in his words, his deeds along the way, but in his influence on his children and grandchildren. But we need to step back for a minute because we're not hardly done with this passage. First question I'd have for you is, who is being addressed in this text. Is this a text addressing old people? Well, no. It's not for old people. If you are like me, aged, you realize that your youth and your most productive years have been spent, and you find yourself increasingly interacting with ologists. (laughs) Cardiologists, rheumatologists, urologists, and oncologists, each one of them forcing you to confront your imminent mortality. We old people face the challenges that come from looking back, not like the young couple on their wedding day looking forward. For us, life now is spent increasingly looking in the rearview mirror. We face the challenges of recalling our own past failures and our disappointments and resentments with those who failed us. We have a different set of challenges and a different focus when it comes to walking in righteousness. There is a way to peace in old age regardless of how you've lived your your life in the past. That's not what this passage is about. This is a passage for those who are looking forward. Looking forward to adulthood, to marriage, to childbearing, to establishing a career, <coughs> to seeing children married. It's as I said in the beginning, how you end that matters, but the focus here is on how you live day to day that gets you to that gray head with the crown. If you want to live a righteous life, you will have to pursue that righteousness today. You must rule your inner spirit when angered. You must trust God when absurd hardships confront you. You must give yourself to building a harmonious family and community. You must work hard and treat your responsibilities like you're an owner, not a hired wage slave. You must embrace hardship as God's personal work to refine you. You must reject the word of slanderers and liars. You must care for those who have less than you do and defend the defenseless and not take advantage of those weaker than you. And when you fail, you get back up and try again. 
A righteous life is not gained through great deeds. It's gained through daily deeds, done in humility and with love for others, even at your own expense. (coughs) It's a life that is not consumed with present joys and pleasures, but with the generations you see coming up behind you. What you are aiming for is a crown that will reflect a life you live for God and others in the small deeds of righteousness accumulated day to day over a lifetime. We're not done yet because there's another challenge here. If you look deeply in this passage, you consider what it says. At least if you're like me, you are much more prone to look back and see your failures in this text. Or if you're young, you think, well, you know, I got at least another 60 or so ahead of me. I I got time for this. Not relevant to me. I I can't imagine being married, even though you should. everything's ahead of me. Or maybe you never married or were unable to have children. Where does this text leave you? Now, one of the things you have to know about the Old Testament is that the Old Testament is always pointing. The Old Testament passages point. The wisdom about making a good life through daily righteous living, affecting your children and grandchildren, is true But there's a bigger truth that encapsulates that truth. And that truth regards the crown of righteousness that we see in 1631. That crown points to a greater crown. Now to get at this, we've got to begin with Jesus. How does Jesus measure up to this passage in Proverbs? He never married, never had children. When you look at him in light of the seven verses that form the heart of our text, you can say that he walked the path of righteousness. Even those who hated him could find nothing wrong with him. At his trial, no one could produce evidence that Jesus was corrupt. And they tried, and they were willing to put forward people who would lie about Jesus if that would get him convicted. Quoting Matthew 26, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony about Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. They couldn't even find false testimony. So they turned him over to the Roman governor, Pilate. After examining Jesus, Pilate told the Jewish rulers and their mob, as John records it, I found no guilt in him. So you begin and continue on the path of righteousness by being joined to the one who lived a life in this world no different from the world you live in, yet Jesus never sinned. So the gift of righteousness that you receive is the gift of Jesus Christ joining himself to you 
putting his spirit inside of you. That's how righteousness begins and ends in your life. And so it doesn't matter your station in life or the condition of your family. You are righteous in Christ's righteousness. So you begin by receiving this righteousness as a gift. And in the joy of that gift, you seek to imitate the one who gave his life for you to receive it. So if you're young, you can work for this crown of the gray heads by living in and out of the gift of righteousness that Jesus offers you. And if you are old, you can live with the knowledge that all your sins are forgiven sins and all your regrets are swallowed up in the ocean of God's love. You cannot earn righteousness. We cannot earn children who walk in our ways or grandchildren who treat us well. A child goes astray. The parent immediately says, what did I do wrong? Maybe you did nothing wrong. Maybe he just went astray. His choice. But you don't, you don't evaluate your life based on the success or failure of your children. It's just another form of legalism. The wisdom of the aged is that all we did well was by grace. All we did well was by grace. It's a gift. And any good that came from it also came to us as a gift from our gracious Savior. The wisdom of the young is to see Jesus, to embrace by faith his gift of righteousness, and to live for him as he lived, losing yourself in loving him and then turning to love others in all the small ways that come to you day by day. <coughs> there is... So this crown of righteousness, where did the crown of righteousness in 1631, where does it point us? There is a crown of righteousness promised to all of us who put our faith in Jesus. And it's found in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a younger disciple that he had mentored and in the letter, Paul is contemplating the coming of his death. And in that, in that letter, he wrote these words. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The same language as Proverbs 16. But this crown of righteousness... Paul writes, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not to me only. Okay, we look at Paul. He's the super saint, super apostle. Well, he wouldn't have called himself that, but we can see him that way. Put him in a separate category. But he says, no, not only am I going to get this crown, but to all who have loved his appearing. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you love that he came into the world, you love that he gave you his spirit, forgave all your sins, you love the fact that he's coming back to set this mess of a world right. You're awaiting a crown. 
This is the crown we're all aiming for. Not the crown of reputation, not the crown of children or grandchildren, the crown that comes from Jesus. That's the crown we want, and that crown comes as a gift. Knowing that crown's coming will keep us in the fight. It will keep us on the road. It will keep us in the faith and faithful. So whether you are seven or 70, this is the way that Jesus laid out for us in the book of Proverbs. <coughs> it is grounded in Jesus' very life. We live by faith. We obey by faith. And in the end, we get a crown, and he gets all the glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. So quickly our hearts go to self-evaluation that's done in self-righteousness, but we now turn to you and thank you that our righteousness has come to us as a gift. And so we pray that out of that gift of righteousness, we would, we would spend the rest of this day seeking to live in the righteous life and the wisdom that we saw in this text today. That we would live lives that are sacrificed for you and for those around us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who's discouraged, that you would encourage them in Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone who is self-righteous, that you would deliver him from trying to prove himself to you or to others. And we would all live in the freedom of the children of God that now allows us to live as Jesus lived. We ask you to do this in each one of us. Through Jesus Christ, we ask you. Amen.